The Jodcast. Me, myself, and I. With Jen Gupta, Tim O'Brien, and Mark Perman. The Jobcast, July 2011 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Mark and I almost had an entire show to myself, <laughs> but uh, Jen just insisted on butting in and presenting with me. I'm sorry. Hello, everyone. You're going to find, unfortunately, there's rather a lot of me in this episode. <laughs> and I'm going to try and come up with as many Mark words as possible. Marktastic. <laughs> That's about as far as I've got so far. <laughs> Mark Iliant. Doesn't really make sense. Like brilliant, but Mark. I don't know. Hmm. I'll come up with some better ones. In the show this time, we find out why submillimeter astronomy is like dipping a thermometer into the Milky Way, and Dr. Tim O'Brien returns to answer your questions. But first, before all of that, here's Dr. Pierre Maxted telling me how to discover an <laughs> exoplanet without breaking the bank. Now, we often have a lot of interviews about uh, very large-scale things on the Jogcast, uh, galaxies and cosmology and so on, but our colloquium this week was Dr. Pierre Maxted of Kiel University, who was telling us about searching for extrasolar planets, planets outside our solar system. So I thought I'd just first ask you, how on earth do you find a planet that's around another star? So the signal that we're looking for uh, is called a transit. So if you have a planet like Jupiter in our own solar system, that goes around the Sun every few years. But there are a class of planets that were discovered in 1995 called hot Jupiters. Now they go around their stars every few days. And they go around every few days because they've got less fast travel because they're really close to the star. These things orbit around their stars ten times closer than the Earth does around the Sun. So it's within the orbit of Mercury. So why do you refer to them as hot Jupiters? Because they're so close to their stars, one side of them is hot. It's the, they get up to around 2,000 degrees Kelvin, which is hot enough to melt rocks. So any clouds in the atmospheres of these objects are made out of vaporised rocks. Uh, so when they're that close to the star, there's a fairly good chance when you're viewed from the Earth that during the orbit, this planet will go between the Earth and the star. So it will block the light of the star. So that will give you a dip in the brightness because you're blocking some of the light from the star. It'll give you a dip in the brightness of about 1%. So if you monitor thousands and thousands of stars similar to the sun and you monitor them for long enough, some of them will produce this little dip that lasts a few hours. It's about 1% deep and it keeps recurring. This is why we know it's not due to a cloud or a bird flying in front of the star in the, in the Earth's atmosphere or what have you. It's because it keeps happening on a well-defined period. It keeps happening, say, every three and a half days or two and a half days or whatever it is. So when you see that signal around a star like that, you've got a good candidate for saying there is a gas giant planet orbiting that star. And then you need more specialised observations using spectrographs to confirm that that's due to a planet and not due to something else. So we might come on to the spectrograph bit in a minute, but um, the actual project you've been working on, I think we once had an interview about it before, but that was um, a little while ago. And I think that at that time there have been about nine planets found by that project. So could you tell us a bit about it and, and how it's getting along? So the planet searching project is called WASP, Wide Angle Search for Planets. Uh, 
So we have two instruments, one in the Northern Hemisphere on uh, the Canary Islands, and we have one in the Southern Hemisphere in South Africa, about a five hours drive away from Cape Town, two good astronomical sites. Each of those instruments has eight cameras on it. So the camera lens is actually a normal camera lens, like the type of thing you'd see. Let's say uh, if you look around the edge of a, a football pitch, you'll see journalists there with these huge camera lenses. Well, we have uh, eight of those camera lenses on each of the instruments, and they give us wide fields of view. The detectors are similar to the detector you'd find in a digital camera, but they're very, very high quality, so they're much more expensive. But they're much more sensitive, and uh, they give us uh, much better quality of data. So we take these good quality camera lenses, good quality CCD lenses, we make an array of eight of them on each instrument, and we use them to monitor a large area of the sky. With one exposure, with one snapshot, uh, we get an image that's about 15 by 30 degrees on the sky. Uh, And so we monitor, say, 10 or 12 patches of sky every night. We'll go back to them every 5 or 10 minutes and take an image. Every camera will have a an image of about 8 by 8 degrees and there'll be say 100,000 stars and we'll measure the brightnesses of all those stars in all those images and we might get a thousand images a night. So overall we're accumulating a vast quantity of data so that we can monitor thousands and thousands of stars and that's enabled us to find so far in the region of 40 to 50 planets. There's 40 or so that we've announced and there's about another 10 that we're in the process of checking all the numbers working out exactly uh, how big the planets are and and getting those written up for publication and announcement. So with these two um, sites, one in the Northern Hemisphere and one in the Southern Hemisphere, you're sort of able to mine the whole sky for for where these exoplanets are? Almost the entire sky, yes. The Northern Hemisphere instrument doesn't quite go uh, to the Northern Pole, so there's a little patch around the Northern Pole we can't observe. And uh, for technical reasons to do with the, the system that we use, we can't observe through the Milky Way. We can observe there, but the data quality is very poor. But apart from, from that, it's an all-sky survey, more or less. Okay. And are you using enormous telescopes to do this searching? No. Uh, the telescopes that we use are, as I said, these camera lenses, and the, the aperture that we use is about 4 inches, about 10 centimetres. That turns out to be the optimum size for doing a survey of this type. All the successful surveys are very similar in their design, and they have this aperture size of about 10 centimetres. The, the trade-off that you make, if you have a smaller aperture, you get a bigger field of view, but you have fewer stars because you can only go to the really bright ones. If you get a bigger telescope, you can look at fainter stars, but you get a smaller area, and the compromise turns out to be 10 centimetres turns out to be pretty optimum in that you're looking at fairly bright stars, so bright enough to see in binoculars, uh, something between about 10th and 12th magnitude. Mm-hmm. And there's enough of those that you can survey a large number of stars. So is it something that an amateur person could do with a telescope? I mean, how much would it cost to kind of set up a, a project like that? Uh, you could do it from your back garden. Uh, you'd have to be pretty wealthy. Uh, it is possible to detect these transits using off-the-shelf equipment. So if you had something like a 14-inch or 16-inch telescope and a good quality CCD and you are patient enough to get the data quality that you need, it has to have a good tracking mount, you have to have good control over your focus, you need a pretty good sight. But it is possible to detect these transits using amateur equipment. And that's been shown, that's been done. Uh, it's been done uh, by several amateurs. In terms of actually searching for planets, you'd be pretty lucky to find one because you need 
you'd be pretty lucky to find one because it's only one in a thousand stars that have these transits. But there are about a hundred stars that are known to transit, and so you can go and observe the transit of an exoplanet using amateur equipment, either your own, if you're lucky enough to own big telescopes, or if you're a member of a, an astronomical society, they may have the equipment that you could do this. And it's an interesting thing to do, because we discover them, we show that they're planets, and then we tend to move on and, and do other observations of that planet. But we don't monitor the transits. We don't go back and see if the transits keep happening at a regular time. And there's actually science to be got out of measuring the transit times. And so there's an ongoing projects, often done by amateurs, to just monitor these transit times and see if they start doing something strange. Yeah, that's really interesting because you tend to just think that um, amateur astronomy is going to be stars and perhaps some nebulae and perhaps some galaxies, but um, actually looking at, at planets outside our solar system. I mean, no one had even done that, what, 20 years ago? 1995 was the discovery of the first extrasolar planet. Uh, yes, prior to 1995, extrasolar planet science was uh, had, was thoroughly disreputable. It was uh, <laughs> not considered to be a serious part of, of astronomy, but now it's the biggest thing in astronomy and everyone's getting involved, including the amateurs. So it, it really opens up a whole new avenue of research. So what I'm wondering is, um, once you've found some planets uh, with with WASP, for example, how do you then uh, find out something about what, what you've found? There's various techniques. Probably the easiest ones to explain are the eclipse measurements. So we see the transit. That's how we detect them. You can do that in the optical regime. And that's caused by the star's light being blocked by the planet. Half an orbit later, the planet goes behind the star. And so you get an eclipse of the planet by the star. Now, the planet is much, much fainter than the star, so that's a small effect. But it is measurable, particularly at infrared wavelengths, because the surface of the planet is generally, as I mentioned, around about 2,000 Kelvin. So it radiates most of its energy in the infrared. Um, measuring these small flux drops, flux changes due to the eclipse of the planet, is hard from the ground, but it has been done in the near infrared. But the most successful observations of eclipses have been done from space using uh, the Spitzer Infrared Space Telescope. That's been the, the workhorse for the study of these extrasolar planets, for eclipse measurements certainly. That gives you a measurement of exactly how hot that heated surface of the planet is. And if you make measurements at many wavelengths, with ground-based observations through the near-infrared into the far-infrared with Spitzer, you can then start to put constraints on what the composition of the atmosphere is. You can put uh, models through the observations and rule out some models and rule in other models and say the distribution of light coming off the day side of this planet is, for example, consistent with water being in the atmosphere as mm -hmm. steam. And there was one uh, planet we recently studied called WASP-12, the 12th planet we announced, the, that had a rather peculiar pattern of flux measurements in the infrared. And it turned out that the reason for that was that oxygen was missing from the atmosphere, and that meant the atmosphere couldn't make water. Uh, what it could make was hydrogen plus carbon, and it made methane, so it had strong absorption at certain wavelengths due to methane, and the absorption due to water was missing. So we could say that uh, that planet is carbon-rich. Most planets are oxygen-rich. The Earth is oxygen-rich, for example. 
But so this was a discovery of a new class of planet, carbon-rich planets, which instead of having uh, a silicate core, sort of silicate rocks like you'd have on the Earth, would have carbide rocks and might, for example, have a core made out of pure carbon. Mm-hmm. So a diamond core, if you like. So you're doing these spectral measurements and you're looking at the light coming from the star and from the planet at all these different wavelengths and then looking for these particular telltale wavelengths where certain chemicals or certain uh, elements are mm-hmm. either emitting or absorbing light and that's yes. the, that's your kind of spectral signature to this set of lines yes and that's also i think sometimes another method for how extrasolar planets are actually discovered so when we get the signature that's due to what we think might be due to a planet this dip of about one percent lasts a few hours happens every few days there's many things that can mimic that signal. Things like uh, you can get pairs of stars that give a very similar signal. So what we then do is we give those candidates over to the experts in measuring the velocities of the stars. So this was how the first extrasolar planet was discovered by uh, Michel Mayor and Didier Calos. And in fact, we collaborate with Didier Calos to do this follow-up of our candidates. If you look at the spectrum of a star like the sun if you split up the light with a really good quality spectrograph you see thousands and thousands of lines in the spectrum meaning that a particular very well-defined wavelengths there's a drop in the flux and that gives you a sort of ruler of how fast the star is going away from you if you can measure the positions of those thousands and thousands of lines take the average result you can very precisely measure how fast the star is moving towards you or away from you. For a single star, then, that will just be a constant number. It'll just be drifting through space with a constant radial velocity. If there's a planet going around it, the star will wobble backwards and forwards by about 50 metres per second or so. And that's the signal that Didier and Michel Mayor were looking for, uh, was this periodic wobble in the velocity of the star. So the star's doing a little orbit of its own. The star's doing a little orbit of its own. If you imagine somebody who's throwing the hammer, so you've got some big bloke who weighs 100 kilos and he's swinging around a a hammer that weighs uh, 10 kilos. The hammer's going around really, really, really fast. But the man who's throwing the hammer does that nice little pirouette. He's moving around on a much smaller circle. And the size of the circle that he does compared to the size of the circle that the hammer does, is the ratio of their masses. And that's how it works. The analogy then is you transform that to the man is the star that you can see, the hammer is the planet that you can't, but you can see the wobble of the star. You can see the wobble of the man. So there must be something out there making wobble. And it's telling you about how massive the hammer is as well. Exactly. The if he's moving backwards and forwards a lot, it must be a, something very massive that's moving it around. So this is how we distinguish stars from planets as being the unseen thing that causes the transit. If the size of the wobble is too big, we can say that's too big to be a planet, that's something else, which may be interesting in its own right, but it's not a planet. We're looking for a wobble due to a planet, so the wobble's got to be the right size, and it's got to happen on the same orbital period as the transit. So if the transits happen every 3.2 days, the wobble's got to go backwards and forwards every 3.2 days. Mm-hmm. So of all these planets that are found, are, are they? Um, do we know if they're typical? Are they something like Earth, or are we getting a selection of rather unusual planets? The hot Jupiters 
weren't expected, so they're unusual in that sense. But it's difficult to know whether they're typical for planetary systems in general. We know amongst the stars that have got planets going around them, which are gas giants, uh, we know that the, the hot Jupiters are relatively common compared to the normal Jupiters or cold Jupiters. What we know much less about at the moment are the less massive systems. We're starting to get some information on those from people doing velocity surveys, but the thing that's really coming through now and telling us a lot about those is the Kepler satellite, because that's a space-based observatory and they don't have to deal with the variations in the atmosphere and they can observe continuously they're able to see much, much smaller transits. And so we're getting a flood of information now from the Kepler satellite about the frequency or how often stars have rocky planets going around them. And mm -hmm. it turns out there's many more rocky planets out there than there are gas giant planets. So the hot Jupiters that we find are really the tip of the iceberg and the rocky planets, the things which are sort of several Earth masses, several Earth radii, the sort of super-Earths, they're much more common. Hmm. That's interesting because I think something that almost every astronomer gets asked quite often is um, whether they think there's life out there in the universe. And usually I've said, gosh, I just don't know what most of the numbers are involved. How I don't really have uh, a good handle on how many planets there might be on which life could develop. But it, it seems as though these kind of missions are finally starting to give us a handle and perhaps quite an op optimistic estimate for how many planets there might be out there. There are several factors you want to take into account if you want to make an educated guess at whether there's life in the galaxy, apart from what we know of in, on the Earth. One of those factors is how many stars have got planets around them, because it's reasonable to assume that life would be on a planet. That is, as you say, optimistic. There appear to be plenty of planets out there. It was hard to find them, but once we started, once we discovered how to look for them, there's plenty of them out there. So that all helps. The things that we still don't know are things like how many of those planets are at just the right distance from the star to have liquid water on them. We know of a few of those planets, but we don't have a good handle on the numbers for how common they are. And the really hard question to answer, which is possibly unanswerable is given the right conditions for life how often does life occur much harder question to answer you can get some idea of an answer to that by looking in the solar system at all the places where life could feasibly exist so obviously on the earth we know that but in places like mars and uh, under the ice of saturnian moons and possibly on places like titan there's a possibility that life could be there. So this is why NASA really want to go and look at this place and see if life occurs whenever it can, whenever the conditions are right, mm. do you get life? Even if there's one other instance of life occurring on in the solar system, independently of the Earth, that would give you optimism for saying, if the conditions are right, then life will arise. And uh, just going back to the planets that WASP has found, I know they're not uh, really candidate planets for having life on them but uh, you mentioned during the talk that they may not each individually be around for very long that's true they're all doomed in fact all the hot jupiter planets all the planets that are gas giants orbiting stars like the sun with periods of a few days they're all doomed to fall into the star eventually the uh, tidal interactions between the star and the planet gradually dragging the planet in 
so we know that they are going to fall onto their stars eventually. What we don't know so well is how long that process takes. We know that it can't be really fast because otherwise we wouldn't see them at all. They all have disappeared already. But we don't actually know how long it takes because the processes involved are complicated to do with turbulence in the atmosphere of the star. Uh, so that's a hard physics problem to solve. But this is, for example, one of the reasons why you might want to do measurements of the transit times of some of these planets. In some cases, it may be possible to actually see the orbit decaying uh, over the next 20 to 30 years. One star in particular, WASP-18, that we found, the planet is quite massive, and so it interacts quite strongly with the star. It orbits around its star in less than a day. So we may be able to see that planet gradually spiralling in to the star, because we should see the period of the star getting slightly shorter with mm. time. And are these planets usually tidally locked so that they're only ever showing one face of themselves to the star in the same way as the moon does with the Earth? That's what we assume, uh, because the tides are so strong, uh, much stronger than the Earth-Moon system. So they do have a permanent day side and a permanent night side. Right. So then as they transit in front of the planet, you're looking at their dark side or their cold side. That's right. Uh, you can actually use that fact that the planet is uh, rotating once per orbit to uh, measure the distribution, to actually map the temperature of the planet. And that's something that has been done with the Spitzer Space Telescope. It's something I'm working on at the moment for WASP-18, is actually to measure the amount of infrared light that comes from the system over a whole orbital cycle. Uh, and what we're finding with WASP-18 is you can see a big contrast between the day side and the night side. The infrared flux changes by quite a lot as you go over the cycle, meaning that the day side is much brighter than the night side. So it's a bit of a mystery as to what's stopping all the energy that's falling on the day side from being blown round to the back side of the planet by the winds in the atmosphere of the planet. So we're sort of able to use that data to perhaps even um, refine or, or rewrite some models of the nature of uh, planets. Yes, absolutely. So people who've worked on climate models for planets like the Earth and have extended those to planets in the solar system are now having great fun taking their models of the climate of a planet and applying it to these extreme systems and seeing how the models do. So they want as much observational data as possible to test their models with. And this measurement you can make of how efficiently the heat moves from the day side to the night side, it's a key parameter for determining the overall structure of the climate of these planets. So it's very important to measure it if you want to understand how these climate models do when you apply them to these very extreme systems. So perhaps the last thing, how far do you see the WASP project going? How many planets do you think you can collect? I think the number most of the people in the project have in their head is that we'd really like to get to 100. Mm -hmm. I think we can do that by continuing to observe, but also with the images that we've already got in hand, we can improve the way that we analyse those images. So we are currently working on a relatively simple way of measuring the brightness of each star in each image. There are more sophisticated techniques out there that need to be adapted to the rather extreme images that we have, the very wide field images that we have. But by applying these more sophisticated data analysis techniques, we should be able to pull out good quality data for more stars in the existing data. If we combine that with continuing to observe so we can find longer period planets and by improving the hardware by doing things like putting filters into the system 
uh, and perhaps using different lenses where we can look at even brighter stars. With these combinations of different tricks and different techniques and hard work, well, I think we'll get to 100. I'd certainly be very happy if we got to 100. That would be a reason for great celebration. Well, that's fascinating. I bet there'll be a few people who will want to get their telescopes out and try and actually um, follow up some of those extrasolar planets that you found. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for that, Mark. And here's another Mark Ifferson interview. He talked to Professor Glenn White about what far infrared and submillimeter astronomy can tell us about our galaxy. Professor Glenn White of the Open University and also the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory has been giving a colloquium at Jodrell Bank today about observations at far infrared and submillimeter wavelengths, and particularly studies of our own galaxy. So, first of all, what is it that these wavelengths give us in astronomy that others can't? One of the problems we have is that the galaxy is quite opaque when we try to observe its emission. In other words, we can't see very far around us, only a few thousand light years, because small particles in the space between the stars, the so-called interstellar dust, absorb the light and prevent us from seeing anything other than our closest galactic environment. The far infrared wavelengths that I work at have the advantage that they penetrate much further through the galaxy and allow us to observe material even when it's at the other edge of the galaxy. So we have a much greater volume of space to look through with our infrared eyes than we do with our, our optical eyes. And we've been very fortunate in Europe that over the last 30 years we've had many space missions which have very sensitive detectors at these wavelengths that have been able to make surveys of our galaxy and of our universe to search for all the phenomena that we can uniquely study, such as how stars are born, where planets might be orbiting other stars, how material around old stars after they've lived their lifetime and died is thrown back out into space and cycled back in again to the next generation of stars. So many of these phenomena we can only observe at far infrared wavelengths because of the ability of those wavelengths to penetrate so far around us and let us see our galactic neighbourhood. So how is it that those particular phenomena that you're looking at come to be emitting in the far infrared and submillimeter? Most of the emission at far infrared wavelengths is rather akin to heat radiation. So what we're actually seeing is the heat radiation of small solid particles, perhaps made of carbon or silicon, rather common elements on the Earth, which are heated by the light of stars. And that starlight is absorbed onto these small particles and is re-radiated at infrared wavelengths as effectively heat. So what we really have are sensitive thermometers in space, which instead of registering my temperature when I put a little glass bulb into my mouth, can actually remotely measure the temperature of a small dust grain, a millionth of a metre in diameter, that's at a distance of 10,000 light years away from me. And you just try and imagine how difficult it would be for me to measure the temperature of you as the listener, just a few feet away from me, and here I am 
trying to measure something at the distance of tens of thousands of light years. It's a real mind blower. It is. So that dust becomes an advantage then at these wavelengths. It's actually passing on the information about what it's surrounding. Indeed, the infrared is so powerful in its ability to penetrate to large distances that it is one of the only ways that we're able to look back even to the beginnings of the universe, the so-called cosmic microwave background. And it's really by focusing on these long wavelengths and the particular kinds of emissions that we see, the so-called thermal emission, that in the case of the cosmic microwave background, the history of our universe, we're able to look back to things as they were tens of billions of years ago. And what instruments are we using to do that currently? The kinds of detectors that we use are made of semiconductors. They're the kind of material that we find in transistor radios or computers, but they're often cooled down to very, very low temperatures of perhaps a few tenths of a degree Kelvin above absolute zero. So a typical detector of this kind in a space satellite would be contained inside a large bath or a large container of liquid helium, which is cooled down to extremely low temperatures of a few degrees, maybe four degrees above absolute zero, and then by various other technologies is brought down to just a few tenths of a degree above absolute zero. And the reason we're trying to do that is that if you're trying to measure these incredibly low thermal signatures, the incredibly low temperatures of objects that are a very large distance away, you don't want the heat radiation of your detector to swamp the, this very feeble, faint radiation that you're trying to detect. So by cooling our detectors down to very low temperatures, the very faint emissions that we're trying to detect in space are still capable of being detected. But of course this means that we have to fly lots of helium or coolants in space, and this is why our current space mission, the Herschel Space Telescope, is about the size of a London bus in orbit because the great majority of its volume is taken up by flying a large tank of liquid helium. So it's quite high-tech. Is that something that you have to do from space? The radiation we're trying to detect is very effectively absorbed in the Earth's atmosphere. So none of the radiation, this crucial radiation that's telling us about star formation or planets or the earliest stages of the universe, none of that radiation is able to get down to even our telescopes at the tops of high mountains. So the only way we can do this kind of work is to do it from space. And that's why we've had this 30-year history of developing big space instruments and flying them as observatories to try to detect these very important, very unique signals of the properties of material in the galaxy. Okay. Well, we don't have a lot of time, but the thing I was most interested in during your talk was when you spoke about the interstellar medium, the dust and diffuse material in our own galaxy, having a characteristic filamentary structure, sort of pillars or threads that are where star formation often happens. 
Could you tell us what you've been able to discover about that? We're interested in finding out how stars are born, how planets might be formed around them. And so we want to understand this process that allows these massive objects, stars that are burning hydrogen, providing the fuel and heat to sustain life, how they can come into existence. And what we believe happens is that clouds of material, the same material that will form the stars, clouds of hydrogen gas, collapse under their own weight, under their own gravity. But what we've been finding is that this is not a random process spontaneously happening wherever you look in the galaxy. It seems to preferentially form in regions that we call naturally star formation regions that often appear as as filaments or kind of strings of pearls where the small dense regions on those strings or filaments have just the right conditions to come together collapse under their own weight under gravity and to form stars and what our current observatory the Herschel Space Observatory has been showing us and revealing to us is that almost all of the material in the galaxy is structured or formed into these long interstellar filaments that are many many light years in length and a fraction of a light year across and we're starting to see that this is one of the fundamental structures that goes on eventually to form stars. And so by studying the ubiquity, the, the everywhere-ness of this filamentary structure, we've begun to learn about the early conditions that lead to the formation of stars and ultimately probably to life as we know it. And something I'd really like to know is, are these filaments related to the mechanism of the very large-scale universe where we see galaxies forming in filaments and galaxy clusters developing at the vertices of these filaments? Is it the same sort of physics? Everywhere we look in the universe, we see structures on one sky scale or another that seem to be aligned in filaments, whether it's the chains of the so-called dark matter that joins together clusters of galaxies, or whether it's the arms of galaxies, the so-called spiral arms, or now the small structures, the filaments that we see in star formation regions. So I think we're starting to learn that these kinds of structures are everywhere and that they are intimately connected not only to the formation of stars and planets, but also to the larger scale structures in the universe. We even sort of know the basic physics of how that happens. It comes through a process that's called turbulence. But we're starting, it's a very complicated subject, and we're only just now starting to assemble the basic data sets together that are allowing us to observe this process in, in, in action. And over the year or two to come, we hope to take those data and those new results and turn them into a new understanding of the physical processes that control everything in the universe on both the small scale, the star formation and planet formation, right up to the large scale structure of the universe. Well, that is really fascinating. I think we've run out of time, so I'll say thank you very much there. Thanks for that, me. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'm enjoying this episode. <laughs> now it's time for that part of the show that we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. The 135th and final NASA shuttle mission is in progress at the time of recording. It launched on the 8th of July and docked with the International Space Station for the last time on the 10th of July. I found a few numbers relating to the um, missions. There have been five shuttles that have flown and they've clocked up almost a billion kilometres between them and taken over 350 astronauts into space. Not forgetting, of course, that two of the shuttles were lost and 14 people actually died during the course of the NASA shuttle era. Atlantis's final flight took the Raffaello Multipurpose Logistics Module to the ISS, which can actually plug straight into it. And it carried supplies, including several tons of food and some spare parts, apparently enough food to last the astronauts on the ISS a whole year if they have to. There was one spacewalk during which they had to remove part of a cooling pump that had stopped working. And on the 20th of July, Atlantis is going to come back to Earth. And that, after 30 years, is going to be the end. 20th of July is kind of a suitable date because that's the anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing. So that's kind of fitting. Mm, yes. Although, if you're Australian, the Apollo 11 landing happened on the 21st, which is rather confusing. <laughs> that brings us back to the question of what time is it in space? Yes. We never worked that one out. I think it's UTC. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. It all seemed to be a bit emotional when they launched the final shuttle. There was yeah. lots of um, cheesy quotes. NASA TV kind of went a bit over the top. But it was fun. We watched it in the um, seminar room. So quite a few astronomers sat around watching it. And I have to admit, I had my Lego space shuttle with me. <laughs> Although this time we didn't make it kind of fly off a table <laughs> as the space shuttle launched because we did that last time. I blame Megan for that. It does feel weird that it's not going to be the shuttle era anymore. My whole life, it's been there. Yeah. And it's like, what's next? But it's not the end of human space flight. I think... It's impressive that they lasted as long as they are, but hopefully this will push NASA to develop new things. I know NASA aren't doing it, but NASA pay other people to develop new spacecraft because hopefully then we can go to the moon and Mars and asteroids and other cool stuff like that. Would you go to Mars? Maybe that's a good question for the forum. Let's say you couldn't come back. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) But you got to be the pioneer developing life on Mars. Can I take my dogs? Yes. (laughs) You can take your dogs. You might take some other human company as well. Maybe. (laughs) So speaking of confusing time zones and not quite knowing when anniversaries are, on the day of recording, which is the 11th of July or tomorrow, it's one Neptune year since it was discovered. So Neptune has completed one orbit of the sun. It's a bit confusing. The um, Guardian is saying it's the 11th and the BBC website are saying it's the 12th. I think the confusion comes about because it was discovered around midnight on the 23rd of September 1846. So I think it was actually the 24th. It was first seen in Berlin. So I think it was the 24th in Berlin, but it was the 23rd here. and Mm. A bit confusing. But Neptune was really interesting because it was the first planet that they actually used maths to predict where it was going to be and then someone went out with a telescope and they found it yeah that is really cool so it was actually a bit controversial a british mathematician and a french mathematician both did the calculations so people had noticed that uranus wasn't quite going the way it should be which meant that there was a body affecting it so they knew that there had to be at least one other planet out there so what happened was the frenchman 
published his results. The British man went to the Astronomer Royal and tried to get him to to go and look at it with a telescope. So actually, the Germans were going off the Frenchman's publication. Uh, so he was able to predict where it was supposed to be as well. Yeah, so both of them predicted where it was supposed to be. The British guy didn't publish his results publicly. Mm-hmm. So the same thing happened with the telescope. Galileo wrote about it, and I can't even remember the British man's name, but he, I think, technically used a telescope before Galileo, but no one knows about <laughs> that. But speaking of Galileo, he actually did look at Neptune before this. Really? If you go back and have a look, yeah, in like 1613 or around then, if you go and have a look in his um, notebooks, obviously I don't think we can actually just go and have a look, <laughs> but he would noted down this star that actually turned out to be Neptune, but he didn't realise it was a planet. I think he realised it was something different. Did he know it was moving at a different rate to the other stars? I suppose well, he could have just thought it was in quite a nearby star. Perhaps. It was actually at the um, point of retrograde, so when it was kind of stopping and going back the other way. Mm-hmm. So to him, it didn't actually look like it was moving that much, which is pretty interesting. Yes, so the anniversary, we think, is 2148 UTC on the 11th of July. And this is from someone's blog who has actually gone and calculated it really accurately. A very detailed blog post. Yes, yeah, so we'll link to that in the show notes. They actually say 2148 UT plus or minus 15 minutes. Well, it does all depend <laughs> what you call a whole orbit, doesn't it? Because if you yeah. just had Neptune and the Sun, then it would follow the same orbit forever. But because you have these other planets perturbing it, presumably its orbit isn't quite a nice ellipse. It has little bits of perturbations, just like what it does to Uranus. Yeah. So saying exactly when one Neptunian year has happened is perhaps not as precise as you might think. No, it's about 164.79 years, but isn't always. It's interesting. And the other thing is that we're not where we were one Neptune orbit ago, so it's not in the same place in the sky, which is kind of interesting as well. So happy first birthday to Neptune. Yay! There was some potentially bad news for NASA this month as the proposed James Webb Space Telescope now looks like its funding is seriously under threat. It's proposed to be something of a successor to Hubble, but looking in the near-infrared part of the spectrum, so it should be able to look back to the very earliest galaxies whose visible light has been redshifted down to the infrared. Because the universe is expanding, its light's been stretched out as it travels through space. You say it's um proposed that the James Webb Space Telescope is actually quite far along in its development. Quite a lot of the instruments are being built and the technology is being developed, but it is severely over budget already and behind schedule. So the US House Commerce, Justice and Science Subcommittee proposed this NASA spending bill, part of which specifically says to cut the James Webb Space Telescope. So this proposal cuts $1.6 billion from NASA's current budget, which puts it at about $2 billion less than what President Obama wanted it to be, and gives them $16.8 billion to actually work with. Um, There was also some cuts to the National Science Foundation, the NSF. I think for scientists it would be a shame because it's been planned for a long time. Yeah, and also it will put a lot of people out of jobs. Even if they cancel it, that money's not going to then go on to other astronomy projects. So if they were saying, we'll cut this, but we'll fund lots of other things, then I think a lot more astronomers wouldn't be that upset. But it's just completely taking money away, which is sad. Mm. It's like sort of like everything seems to be having budget cuts. I mean, it's it's not immune, unfortunately. But it, it would be a shame if the project really 
was cancelled. I mean, if it was shelved for a time or, or, or postponed, that would be better, I suppose. Whether well, that's a possibility, I don't know. So you know there were the great observatories, which Hubble was one of them. Mm. It leaves us with nothing in, like, when Planck runs out and the Fermi gamma ray telescope runs out, when they all of them finish, we're going to be left with pretty much nothing because there's this big gap between that and then things like the square kilometre array and the extremely large telescope or whatever they're naming, yes. the next big ground-based optical one. Um, there's quite a gap between between those, so it would set us back severely. Well, we'll just have to see how it goes. Hopefully it might get a reprieve. That's still possible. And there's lots of Save the JWST websites out there that you can go. If you're American, you can go and write to your senator or whatever your equivalent of an MP is. I don't understand the US government system. Write to your senator. Sounds like Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> so quite a few listeners will know that at the beginning of July, there was a gig at Jodrell Bank, which was a very strange experience, but it was a lot of fun. Um, a few of us went down and did some talks and question and answer sessions, which were actually really packed. I was quite surprised. I thought a lot of people would just be there for the gig, but Loads of people came along early, had a look around the new Discovery Centre. It was really nice and sunny. I had the solar telescope out, which was cool. And Tim O'Brien actually got to go up on stage twice and talk a bit <laughs> about Jodrell Bank and the Lovell Telescope. And there was this really awesome bit where they were moving the Lovell Telescope around so they could project onto it. And then he radioed the controller and asked him how many degrees we had left to go. And it was really awesome. And um, at one point, people started chanting science which i never <laughs> thought i would hear at a gig like during the flaming lips the, the flaming lips were headlining and at one point people just do it went science science <laughs> and people were clapping along to pulsar noises and things when tim was on so that was really cool um this has resulted in tim having a fan group on facebook so you can go and officially like i think it's like dr tim o'brien the awesome scientist who told us space stuff or something like that. <laughs> yes go and like tim on facebook I've heard a lot of positive feedback about the gig, actually. People seem to really enjoy it. It was a lot of And fun. all the science demos. And I think there might be more in the pipeline. Yes, but we don't know what yet. Nope. And if you've been missing the awesome astrophysicist dude from Jodrell Bank Live since the gig, <laughs> here is the legend that is Dr. Tim O'Brien to answer your questions. So this month we're going to start with a couple of questions that came in on the Jodrell Bank Twitter feed or as a result of some uh, discussions on the Jodrell Bank Twitter feed. And the first one's about um, about Aphelion. And it was basically why um, why is it so warm now if the Earth is at Aphelion? Now, what do we mean by that? Well, Aphelion is the point in the uh, Earth's elliptical orbit when it's furthest away from the sun. So basically the the helion bit is from from helios for sun, um, and the ap bit means farthest. If we were at the nearest point of the sun, it would be perihelion. So aphelion actually happened on July the 4th. And of course the question really comes up because um, July, it's basically summer, it ought to be fairly warm in the northern hemisphere, at least. And so the question is, well, if we're furthest from the sun, how come it's warm? Now, of course, um, you know, why isn't it colder because we're farther away from the sun? Well, of course, the question, in one sense, the question is a problem because, of course, for people in the southern hemisphere, um, they actually are colder because it's the winter in, in, in July. Um, so that's, uh, that's a clue there. And in fact, the real, the bottom line is that, that uh, and it's actually a classic misconception, is that the distance from the sun of the earth isn't uh, really what affects the change in temperature from winter to summer. It's actually uh, a combination of two things. It's the angle of the sun in the sky, and it's the length of the day. 
and that's basically because the Earth's axis is tilted over at an angle. So basically, for for us here in the in Manchester in the northern hemisphere, um, at the moment, um, the Earth's axis north pole is tilted towards the sun. And so from our point of view, sitting on the surface of the Earth at a latitude of about 53 degrees north, um, that means as we are tilted towards the sun, the sun will appear higher in the sky. And that has two effects in terms of the temperature. Uh, one is that the day, uh, the length of the day is, is much longer. So in fact, the length of our day in the summer is in here in Manchester is, is about 17 hours. Um, whereas in the middle of winter, it's actually it's only about seven and a half hours. So in terms of warming up the earth, you're obviously going to be able to warm it up um, far more in the summer when the sun's up in the sky for longer. But the other significant effect is the angle of the sun in the sky. Because the sun's higher in the sky, its light is actually concentrated over a, a smaller area of, of the ground. Imagine if the sun was very low down in the sky, the rays of sunlight would sort of basically just have a sort of glancing interaction with the earth they come in at a very low angle and so the sort of light is spread over a much larger area so you've got a lot less energy per square centimeter of the earth's surface so a lot less heating and you can sort of work out you know in, in the case of manchester again for example in, in midsummer um this year the sun the highest angle that the sun reached above the horizon was about 60 degrees Whereas in midwinter, the lowest, the lowest angle, you know, so when the sun was at its highest, basically during the middle of the day, it was actually at a much lower angle of about 13 degrees. And if you sort of work out with the, the ratio of the, the signs of 60 degrees and the sign of thir 13 degrees, that ratio is about a quarter. So basically the heating of the sun's about a quarter as effective in winter. Um, and the day is, uh, just a bit less than half as long. And so those two things combined is what is what causes it to be cooler in the uh, cooler in the winter and warmer in the summer. Uh, and it's not to do with the fact that actually the Earth's a little bit farther away from the sun at aphelion than it is at perihelion, because aphelion's in the northern hemisphere summer and perihelion is in the northern hemisphere winter. The other question that came up through a Twitter discussion was was about the um, uh, the orbit of Neptune, and in fact we just had. Neptune's just uh, completed its first orbit around the Sun since it was discovered in 1846, um, and there was a bit of discussion about, you know, how come the how come Neptune's so lazy, <laughs> and it's only just um, it's only just making one orbit around the Sun, 164 years Earth years after its discovery. So we've been around the Sun 164 times, uh, while Neptune's only been around the Sun once. And of course, the point here is. Um, that basically Neptune's a lot farther away from the Sun than the Earth is. So the force of gravity it feels from the Sun is a lot lower. And that means that, that basically that force of gravity is what uh, results in the um, in the speed of the planet uh, as it moves around in its orbit. So you sort of balance the gravitational force um, that the planet feels from the Sun with the centripetal force of, let's say, circular motion, you can actually work out what the speed should be. We call it the Keplerian speed or the Keplerian velocity after Kepler. Uh, and that Keplerian speed goes down as the square root of the, of the radius of the orbit. So Neptune's orbit actually uh, has a radius of about 30 times that of the Earth. So it's about 4.5 million kilometres. It's about 30 times greater than the Earth's. Uh, orbital radius. So its speed is about the square root of 30 slow, smaller. Um, so it's about five and a half times slower than the speed of the Earth and its orbit around the Sun. And of course it's got farther to go because the circumference of its orbit is 
30 times larger because its radius is 30 times greater. So overall, you'd expect the, a year for Neptune to be about 30 times the square root of 30 longer. If you work that out, you get about 164 years. And in fact, if you do it properly, in you know, like with the fact that the orbits are ellipses and so on, um, you get uh, 164.79 years. So that's why Neptune's only just completing its its first orbit uh, after almost 165 years. Uh, and of course, one of the other interesting things about this is that Neptune was discovered because um, its position was predicted from the perturbations, the gravitational perturbations it made on the orbit of Uranus. So by using Newton's laws of gravity, looking at the orbit of Uranus, it was possible to calculate where this unseen planet must be to perturb Uranus's orbit. Point your telescope in that direction, and uh, sure enough, there was, there was the planet Neptune, and that was done um, back in... 1846. Okay, the next question um, is from Richard Pierce, and Richard says, it's assumed that the universe appears the same in all directions from all points, and if so, what are the current leading theories on why this is the case? So yeah, that's uh, that um, assumption that the universe appears the same in all directions from all points is basically uh, isotropy. Isotropy is worth if something looks the same in all directions, and homogeneity is worth something's the same at all, all places. Now, in terms of the isotropy, uh, the best example of this for us is talking about the cosmic microwave background. And if we look at the cosmic microwave background radiation in all directions around us, it's extremely uniform. It looks almost exactly the same in all directions. In fact, we can measure its, its temperature, which basically relates to its brightness. Um, and that temperature is the same in all directions to within one part in 100,000. So almost exactly the same temperature in all directions. The tiny fluctuations, those one part in 100,000 fluctuations are what we measure um, to try and understand the, the variations from uniformity in the universe way back when the cosmic microwave background was, was emitted just 380,000 years after the Big Bang. Now, the problem with this isotropy, this extreme uniformity of the temperature of the cosmic microwave background, is that all these different parts of the universe in these different directions that we look in should only have um, been able to reach the same temperature if they'd actually been in what we call causal contact. In other words, they had to know about each other in order to know to be at the same temperature. And the way in which these regions could know about each other, the fastest um, speed at which they could communicate with each other to let each other know what temperature they should be, uh, to come into equilibrium, um, is the speed of light. So basically you have to have given light time to travel between these different regions to know to be at the same temperature. Now in the sort of standard Big Bang models, um, it turns out that um, at the sort of distance of the cosmic microwave background, um, regions uh, more than about a few degrees across on the sky, so remember the full moon's about half a degree across, so regions more than a few degrees across couldn't have ever been in causal contact. So, you know, why, why should the temperatures be so similar? And that's called the horizon problem. Uh, the terminology horizon problem actually comes about because it's a bit like thinking about ships which are over the horizon from each other. Um, they wouldn't be able to see each other and therefore wouldn't know about each other. Um, now the solution to this um, is an addition to the standard Big Bang model um, and that's a phenomenon called inflation. And what happens in inflation is that it's proposed that there's a very 
um, short period, early, very early on in the evolution of the universe, there's a very short period of extremely rapid expansion, that's called inflation, where the scale size of the universe increases by some huge factor, maybe 10 to the 30 or up to 10 to the 60, in a tiny fraction of a second. So basically, you know, the scale size, the typical distances between points in the universe is very small, and then this suddenly expands. Um, and actually that has two effects. It basically makes space flat, which is what it seems to be, geometrically flat. Um, but it also solves the horizon problem because it basically means that the whole of the observable universe as we see it now could have actually been in causal contact before the cosmic microwave background was emitted and therefore uh, it was possible for it to have known about all these points that we can see within the observable universe would have known about each other um, and therefore could have come to the same temperature and then they rapidly get expanded to a point where now they're no longer in causal contact but they were previously and so that explains why the cosmic microwave background uh, can be at the same temperature and in fact the Planck spacecraft now um, is studying the CMB in detail uh, to see if we can find any other evidence um, in the CMB that would be consistent with inflation. Okay the next question is from uh, Tim Newton and he says and he's got a question about he sort of imagines a, he says how long would it take to race around the universe and he imagines two people and he says that the first person's exactly halfway from the middle of the universe to the edge and the second person is at the edge and each sort of run around a circle um, according to the distance out from the center of the universe and um, he's wondering how long it would basically take them and he's asking things like you know that the person at the edge of the universe would have to uh, go farther since he'd be existing in an area of space which is expanding at near light speed now the problem with this, uh, Tim, is basically that uh, is this whole problem about there being no centres of the universe. Um, we are sitting at uh, no particularly special place in the universe. So although we look out, and as we look out into space, we look farther back in time, and we imagine looking out in all directions out to the edge of what we call the observable universe, that's only the region of the universe for which lights had time to travel towards us since the Big Bang. We could have been any other place in the universe and we could imagine all these different observers at different points within, around the universe and they would each be sitting at the centre of their own observable universe and there'd be no, you know, in a standard model there'd be no difference between these different areas of the observable universe. So although we, uh, for these different observers, so although we sit where we are and we look out to the edge of an observable universe and we say, okay, the, the, when we think about the distance uh, between us and different points, we know from Hubble's law that um, the speed at which these points are expanding away from us increases as the distance increases, so you can get out to very distant points which are actually expanding away from us at faster than light speed. It doesn't mean to say that if somebody was out at that particular place in the universe, the, the space around them would be expanding at anything like light speed or faster than light speed. The same sort of Hubble's law would apply for them, working from their position, looking outwards. Um, so it's, so basically I'm afraid um, that although it was a nice idea thinking about these people circumnavigating the universe on some sort of on these ultra fast uh, light bikes or something going round and round, um, it's sort of based on an incorrect premise I'm afraid, which is that there's a there's a sort of centre of the universe and um, other people can not be at the centre, can be halfway out to the edge and then at the edge. It's all basically relative to where each individual observer is. Okay, um, the last question for this month is from Susan Kelly, and Susan asks about uh, a more technical question about um, 
the way in which objects sort of radiate, the way in which they produce their light, whether that light be visible light or radio waves or x-rays or whatever. And she's talking about the spectra of the light that they produce. In other words, the uh, the way in which the, the amount of energy that they produce, how that varies with the, the wavelength of the light that they're producing. And she's asking about different types of um, spectrum, emission spectra. Uh, so emission being the light that's been emitted by a, by a body. And she talks about what she asks, what's the difference between a thermal emission spectrum and a non-thermal emission spectrum? And is a thermal emission spectrum the same as a black body spectrum? Okay, well, um, two things in there. First of all, what do we mean by thermal? Uh, well, thermal just means something to do with the temperature of an object. So basically a thermal emission spectrum would be something whose where the properties of the spectrum were, were determined by the temperature of the object that's radiating. And a non-thermal spectrum, it wouldn't be related to the temperature. And then she says, is the is a thermal emission spectrum the same as a black body spectrum? Uh, what's a black body? Well, um, if you imagine any object which has got sort of constituent um, particles, atoms, negatively charged electrons, positively charged protons and ions and so on, um, they're basically in a constant state of motion due to the, the fact that they're at a non-zero temperature. And that sort of random jiggling about um, basically results in accelerating charged particles, which results in, a, uh, in them radiating electromagnetic radiation, producing emission. Uh, and in a sort of dense object, that, that radiation that they produce is constantly being absorbed and re-emitted inside the object until perhaps finally it works its way out and escapes from the surface. So that's true, for example, for the sun, uh, where the energy that's being produced in the middle takes uh, thousands of years for it to reach the edge. And when it reaches the edge, because it's been sort of absorbed and re-emitted all this time, um, the properties of that uh, light is almost a black body. It's like a black body. A black body is what we what we consider to be a perfect absorber of all light falling upon it. That's why it would be black, because it would absorb everything falling on it. Uh, and if you can imagine that happening, the energy gets absorbed, and so this body heats up, and then it, as it heats up, it starts to radiate, and actually it would continue to heat, heat up until it came into equilibrium with its surroundings, with the sort of energy that's falling onto it, and radiates just as much energy it's abs as it's absorbing. That would be a perfect absorber and a perfect radiator at an equilibrium temperature, and would produce a black body spectrum whose properties were consistent with that temperature. And basically those sorts of black bodies, those dense objects, those perfect um, objects, um, the, the, they would produce this black body spectrum whose sort of peak energy that they radiate would depend on their temperature so that as you heat them up, um, the peak uh, wavelength gets shorter and shorter so the object looks bluer and bluer. So you can think about this with, you know, heating up a lump of metal or something in a, in a fire. Um, it starts off not radiating at all, really, certainly not in the visible. And then as it heats up, it starts to glow a dull red. And as it gets hotter, the temperature increases. It goes, works its way through the spectrum from dull reds through oranges into sort of a blue-white. And that's basically what, what stars do, really. Um, so if you see a red star, it's cooler. Uh, you see a blue star, it's hotter, which is why it's very confusing in a physicist's bathroom because they've got um, blue stickers on the hot taps and red stickers on the cold taps um, because that's how black body radiation works. So that's a black body. It is a thermal emission spectrum because it depends on the temperature. Susan asked, are all thermal emission spectra uh, black body spectra? Is it the same thing? Well, it's not. Um, and a good example of this is something we call free-free or Bremsstrahlung, which is a German word meaning breaking, as in slowing down, uh, decelerating. 
and uh, free free is a thermal spectrum. The way free free arises, if you imagine a sort of plasma in space, a, a gas of electrons and protons, let's say, for, for hydrogen, it's been ionized. And then basically the, the electrons and protons are all flying around. And as the electrons sort of fly past the protons, the, uh, they feel uh, the Coulomb force, the force between a positively charged particle and a negatively charged particle, that causes them to be accelerated as they sort of curve around it. And that and an accelerated charged particle radiates, uh, produces electromagnetic radiation. Um, in a low-density plasma like that, that produces what we call free-free radiation. Uh, there's two free particles involved, a free proton and a free electron, uh, otherwise known as Bremsstrahlung. That is thermal because the, the speeds of the particles are determined by the temperature of the plasma. So if the temperature was higher, the particles were moving faster, and it's that that determines the, uh, uh, the nature of this mechanism. So that's a thermal spectrum, but it's not a black body. Uh, as it happens, you can sort of look at something like, let's say, the Orion Nebula. The Orion Nebula star-forming region has this sort of uh, plasma in it around these uh, hot young stars that have formed. Um, if you look at them at high frequencies, you see this sort of roughly flat spectrum um, that you get from thermal Bremsstrahlung, where the where the emissions, the strength of the emissions, are roughly the same at all the frequencies. Um, but if you look at lower frequencies, it sort of slopes down and starts to look like a black body. And that's because basically it's dense enough there at those low frequencies for basically the, the, that um, radiation to be uh, self-absorbed in the plasma. And so you start to see a black body at low frequencies. You start to see a sort of a thermal um, a spectrum of Bremsstrahlung at the higher frequencies. So I suppose we should just finish with one example of a non-thermal spectrum. And probably the, the most common example of that is what we call synchrotron. Um, and synchrotron is a, a mechanism that results from uh, electrons or other charged particles, but often electrons moving at extremely high speeds, relativistic speeds, so almost you know approaching the speed of light, um, and moving through a magnetic field. And so, uh, again, there's a force that's felt between the charged particle and the magnetic field that causes the charged particle to be accelerated. That produces radiation. Well, because in this case, the energies of these charged particles, the speeds at which they're moving, is not uh, determined by the by the temperature of, of a plasma in the same way as it was for free-free, then it's a non-thermal mechanism. And typically, these energies of these very, very, very high-speed particles, you know, moving far too fast for it to be due to the uh, a reasonable temperature for these plasmas, those, those high speeds are produced, in many cases, by shock waves, moving through the interstellar medium and it's in the shot as the shock wave moves through the medium these particles can cross and recross the shock wave and each time they can get a kick it's called a this is called a first order fermi mechanism a kick that accelerates the particle to higher and higher and higher energies and that can get them to these very extremely high energies which results in this uh, in this non-thermal mechanism non-thermal radiation we call synchrotron and it's synchrotron that produces the sort of uh, light, for example, in the when we look at the radio sky, um, at the frequencies where there's a classic radio uh, spectrum, radio Im image of the sky produced a few years ago by the, the Lovell Telescope, the Effelsberg Telescope and the Parkes Radio Telescopes. Um, and at those radio frequencies, the radio emission from our uh, galaxy, from the Milky Way, is actually dominated by, by synchrotron um, radiation, which is a non-thermal mechanism. 
Right, I think that's it for um, for this month. Um, if you've got any other questions, send them in by the by the usual routes, and we'll try and answer them again next month. Thanks, Tim. I officially like that. <laughs> <laughs> and now on to the feedback section of the show. We had a postcard about a month ago, but uh, we've been rather remiss and we forgot to include it. It totally didn't just get stuck under a pile of papers on my desk. Mm-hmm. No way. Definitely not. It's from Paul, who used to be at the University of Manchester and is now at University College London and always proof listens to our jodcasts. So he's going to know that we did his postcard really late. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. When he sent it, it was from the IAU Symposium 280 in Toledo in Spain, all about the molecular universe. And he actually wrote the postcard sitting in the Hard Rock Cafe in Madrid, but he says we're not to tell anybody, so we won't. Oops. <laughs> we're only telling our most trusted listeners yes over on the forum thanks to rapid eye for pointing us to a bbc webpage that shows where the hubble space telescope atlantis the space shuttle and the international space station are over the earth so by the time this comes out atlantis won't be up there for very many days but i assume that that website page will still be going and he also mentioned megan's recent 365 days of astronomy podcast if people don't Follow that. Megan's done a second Doctor Who story with astronomy in it and recorded <laughs> it for 365 days of astronomy, which is really cool. And so you should all go and listen to that. Well done, Megan. And thanks also to Inksmithy and Starbug for your comments. On Twitter, Inksmithy again and also Tarash Nat told us that they were listening to old episodes of the Jogcast, which is always nice because we have quite a big archive now. We kept on listening to old episodes of the Jogcast the other day. Me, Megan and our friend Mike went to see Stuart. And in the car on the way back, we had Mike's iPod on the shuffle and it kept on just coming up with old episodes of cast. So we listened to the intro outros and then we'd skip it. <laughs> and thanks also to Works Paul and Geez I Want a Name. It's a good name. Who also, men <laughs> who also mentioned us on Twitter. Over on Facebook, Matthew Fonda Aher. I apologise if I'm pronouncing that wrong, but he gave us a great quote, very poetic actually. He said, oh... How I love the Jodcast. I don't think he was even being sarcastic either. <laughs> oh, how I love the Jodcast. Each new episode bumps all my other regular listens to the end of the queue. That's really nice to hear. Yes, we've had quite a bit of activity on Facebook because people keep on pressing the button to upgrade the group, except none of the admin can see the button that says upgrade this group. And I had a look on the Facebook help, which wasn't very helpful, and said that <laughs> if your group is popular enough you will be able to upgrade it, which seems a bit silly. So we're trying to see how much activity is needed because otherwise the group will be archived, which means that no new people can join and we'd have to start again, which would be really annoying. That would be silly. So thank you to David White for posting a link to a lovely photo of the Lovell telescope that's on Flickr. I don't know if that's also in our Flickr group. And Susan Kelly said, it was great to hear Dave on the show again, which I agree with. It's it always great to hear show. To hear show. <laughs> it's always great to hear Dave on the show and show on the Dave. And that brings us to the end of the show. So before we go, we'd just like to say a big congratulations to Kerry Hebden, who's a PhD student here who's just had a beautiful baby girl. So congratulations. We hope to see you soon. And back to the normal end of the show. Thank you very much to Dr. Pierre Maxted and Professor Glenn White for providing the interviews. The editors for this show were Adam Averson, Tim O'Brien and Mark Perver. And the producer was Mark Perver. 
Hooray for and me. And everything else was Mark Pervert. <laughs> <laughs> so until next time, jod on. Bye. Bye. Bye.